0: Well, it's probably obvious from the Scripture reading that we're taking a break this week from our sermon series in the letter to Philemon, and the reason for that is because my studies this past, this past week were uh, unexpectedly but wonderfully interrupted on Friday by the birth of two grandbabies. Uh, everyone is well, uh, but I was a bit distracted over the weekend. <laughs> Fortunately, I had prepared a message a while back, and uh, and I had it on standby. Now, what that doesn't mean is that this is just some random topic or or Tate's hobby horse. This is intentional. Uh, In fact, I have three reasons for this particular topic. Reason one. This message is intended to be part of our mission and vision series. It's about the centrality of the gospel in the life of the believer. And that focus on the gospel is one of the core values at Living Water Church. We think it is essential to our mission and to our vision. Remember, our mission is to form passionate followers of Jesus. And how do we do that? We do that by proclaiming a central message. And that message is the gospel of the glory of God. That's what we're here to do. And our vision is to advance and further the spread of gospel-loving, gospel-saturated churches among all the peoples of the earth. So that mission and vision is shaped by three core values. And we call them aspirational values because we're not quite there yet but they're what we aspire to. We worship with passion. We center on the gospel, and that's what this message is about. And we disciple in community. And sometime in the future, we'll prepare messages on those other values as we have time. So gospel-centeredness is what we're about. And if it's what we're about and if it's where we're headed, we need to be very clear about what it is. So that's the first reason for this topic. Gospel centrality is core to who we say we are. Reason number two. And this is really the reason behind the first reason. The gospel is core to who we are because the gospel is the main thing in the life of a Christian. We'll see this in this morning's text. The gospel is of first importance. It is primary. It is the non-negotiable. Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote, the gospel is the main doctrine of Christianity in which the knowledge of all godliness is comprehended. More on that in a few minutes. The second reason, then, for this sermon is that the gospel is the main thing in the life of the Christian. My third reason is that we need to learn to apply the gospel to every area of our life. To say that negatively, it would sound like this. There is a widespread failure among professing Christians in applying or connecting gospel truths to to everyday living. This is something the elders have seen in several of the hiring interviews that we've done for the open pastoral position. During the interviews, we give every applicant a scenario like this. We say, Pastor, a 19-year-old man steps into your office and confesses that he is addicted to blank. And you can fill in the blank with whatever sin you want. How, pastor, are you going to counsel this young man? That's the scenario. And the answers that we get tell us a lot about these pastors. Some of them are good. Others are little more than surface tactics for dealing with sin. Some of them only deal with the symptoms of sin. Apps, accountability partners, changing your environment, And of course, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. All of those good things, but little or nothing about the main thing, which is the gospel. The gospel that grants new life and makes us new creatures in Christ. The gospel with the power to sever sin at its root. The gospel that offers the power of a new affection, a heart that's attracted to what is truly and eternally beautiful and pleasurable and all satisfying to the soul. The gospel that is the power of God. A surprising number of the pastors we interview never get to the gospel. And that's tragic. It's tragic for them, and it's tragic for the people they pastor because that's right where the battle line is, maintaining clear connections between the truths of the gospel and our heads, our hearts, and our hands, the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we behave. So this sermon is Gospel 101 for Christians. It is an explanation of one of the core values, the centrality of the gospel, And my purpose is simply to remind you of the primary importance of the gospel and to show you how the gospel is connected to everyday life and to encourage you to rehearse the gospel, or as we say, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Let's open this morning's text. The Apostle Paul here is responding to resurrection deniers in Corinth. And he lays out a masterful defense of the resurrection. And in that defense, he gives the church a beautifully succinct explanation of the gospel. Let's begin there. Verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. We'll come back to those verses, but first, let's see how Paul explains the gospel. We need to define the gospel before we can apply the gospel. And Paul does that by listing four historical facts. Verse three For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Fact one Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel in five words. Christ died for our sins. Those words tell us who He was. They tell us of our need and they tell us of Christ's provision to meet that need. You see, the torture and killing of Jesus the Nazarene outside the city gates of Jerusalem on a cross designed by the Romans for traitors and criminals is an historical fact. It occurred in time and space. It was done in public to be seen by all. And part of God's sovereign design in the slaying of His beloved Son was this. It was for... Our sins. Let the weight of the significance of those five words hit you. Christ died for our sins. We are sinners, all of us. By our birth, we are sinners. By our actions, we are sinners. By our omissions, we are sinners. In our thoughts, we are sinners. Sinners. We have rebelled and committed high treason against the creator and rightful ruler of this universe. And our creator is, such, is of such an infinitely pure and holy and righteous and glorious nature that you and I cannot stand before him because of that sin. He would most certainly be just if he crushed us this very moment And sentenced us to hell. That's what we deserve because of our sin. What's worse, we can do absolutely nothing to remedy our situation. But he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. This merciful and loving God sent his only son into the world on a suicide mission to suffer and die in our place in order to reconcile us to Him. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And since you were helpless and you were dead in your sins and you were unable to save yourself or to take advantage of this good news that we call the gospel, all you can do is receive it as a gift through faith, on the basis of what Christ did. Christ died for our sins. That is gloriously good news. And that's exactly what the word gospel means. Fact two, verse four. He was buried. Paul is expanding on his five-word explanation of the gospel in defense of the truth of the resurrection. What happened at the cross, he says... Resulted in the actual physical death of Jesus. His heart stopped beating. His brain activity ceased. They wrapped him in burial clothes. They put his corpse in a tomb and it stayed there, dead for days. That's a fact. Jesus was dead and he was buried. Fact number three. Still in verse 4, He was raised on the third day. If it were not for the resurrection, this ultimate proof and display of Christ's power over sin and death, none of this would be good news. There would be no gospel. In fact, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says later in this chapter, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. In fact, number four, he appeared, verses five through eight. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they had died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Like His crucifixion and His death and His burial, so the resurrection of Jesus is an historic fact. It was not done in a closet. It occurred in the open for the world to witness. And He appeared to so many people after His resurrection that that it entered history as an indisputable fact. So that's the gospel Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and then He appeared. Point number two, and this point wasn't always so obvious for me. The gospel is for Christians. I spent the first few years of my Christian life thinking that the gospel was basically for unbelievers. It's what you do when you evangelize, you share the gospel with them. So it's for unbelievers to get into the kingdom and it's for believers to use in evangelism to get people into the kingdom. And and once you're in the kingdom, of course, then you move on to other things like how you're supposed to talk now that you're a Christian or how you're supposed to behave now that you're a Christian. But that is not the gospel as we see it in the scriptures. Notice that Paul here is addressing a church. This is a body of believers in the city of Corinth. He calls them his brothers. And not only does he call them his brothers, but they're brothers who had received the gospel. And they were brothers who were standing in the gospel. We see that in verse 1. We should also note that Paul devoted large sections of his other letters to the truth of the gospel. These were letters addressed to to other specific groups of believers. Romans 1 through 11, gospel and gospel truths, followed by chapters of practical life implications that flow from gospel truths. Ephesians 1 through 3, and Colossians 1 and 2, gospel, gospel truths. Clearly, then, the gospel is for Christians, but I want to buttress this truth with two more additional pillars of support. Number one, the gospel is for Christians because it is presently active in your salvation. It was active in the past, and it is active now. Pay attention to the English translation of the verbs, those action words in verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, that's the English present tense, and by which you are being saved. And that's present tense, and it indicates an ongoing action. You are being saved. The gospel is for Christians because it is presently active in your salvation, not merely in the past. Number two, the gospel is for Christians because it is the power of God. Again in verse 2, we see that the gospel is that by which you are presently being saved, and we know that that by which you are presently being saved is nothing less than by the power of the Almighty. That's why Paul could so boldly equate the gospel with the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he said in Romans chapter 1, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that's now, and it's ongoing. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, when I think of power, I think of the 24 megatons of thermal energy released when St. Helens rocked the earth on May 18th, 1980 and spewed ash 50,000 feet into the air. I know that some of you were here when that happened. I was in California and we were buying ash that you guys were shoveling off of your driveways. We were buying it for $10 for a little bottle, genuine Mount St. Helens ash for 10 bucks. (laughs) <laughs> when I think of power, I think of the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, that with an estimated force of 23,000 atomic bombs generated waves 98 feet high and swept nearly a quarter of a million people into eternity. But isn't it telling that in the scriptures, events like that are not identified as the power of Of God. You know what it is? The resurrection, new life in Christ, and the gospel. That is the power of God. So, the gospel for you as a believer is not just what got you in the door, it's not merely a model of sacrifice for you to emulate. It is that, but it is much, much more. It is the power of God. It is the source of grace and genuine transformation in your life. And as you grow in grace and learn to apply the gospel in every area of your life, every area is shaken at the foundation. Every area is subject to the transforming power of the gospel. Nothing in your life is left undisturbed. Your struggles with sin and temptation, your pain and your suffering, your difficult marriage, your job, your ministry, your singleness, your sexuality, the gospel applied shakes the very foundation of your life and leaves no area undisturbed. It is the power of God. Not only is the gospel for Christians presently active in your salvation and the power of God for your salvation, it is also the doctrine of highest importance. Among all the things we teach, the gospel is the most important truth in your life as a believer. That's what Paul says in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The gospel is primary. It is the sum of all we proclaim, and it's the only thing in which to boast. In every way, the gospel is primary. It is the chief thing. It is the main thing, and therefore, it must be the main thing in your life. That's what it looks like to be a passionate follower of Jesus. As one pastor put it, if there's anything in life we should be passionate about, it is the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, and allowing it to color the way we look at the world. And then he makes this remarkable comment, only one thing can be of first importance. That's so true. Only one thing can be of first importance. Everything else gets lumped together as secondary. For the believer, then, the gospel must be the sun at the very center of the solar system of your life. Like the mass of the sun that keeps all planets in its orbit. So the glorious mass of the radiant gospel of the glory of God at the center of your life keeps all other aspects of your life in their proper orbits. Martin Luther made the same observation. The truth of the gospel, he wrote, is the main doctrine of Christianity. Now listen to what Luther infers from that. It is therefore extremely necessary that we come to know this doctrine well and constantly beat it into our heads. If the gospel is for Christians, and if the gospel is primary, then it follows that we must get this doctrine into our heads. We must rehearse it often. Let it soak into the core of our being. That's exactly what Paul is helping the Corinthians do in this text. Verse 1 I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Paul had previously preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Now he puts the gospel in writing to remind them, for them to read and reflect upon, and for them to apply the truths of it to their life. I can think of at least two reasons that you and I should do the same. First... You must continually rehearse the gospel, or if you prefer, preach the gospel to yourself because you are wired to forget. Sure, we understand that salvation was by grace alone, and observing the law or performing good works played no role in that whatsoever, but after we came to faith, We are ever tempted to jettison the grace of God in the gospel and begin laboring under a potentially legal obedience to a set of Christian rules or accepted Christian behavior. Some of us even begin to think that our obedience to these rules impacts our standing before God. If you perform well, God will approve of you. If you don't, you better get moving or else. Living under that will lead you in one of two directions. It will lead you either into pride if you think you're a good performer, or it will drive you to despair. Paul calls it like it is when he says that that way of thinking is foolish. He says to the Galatians, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit of works by the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No. You've been granted new life by the grace of God in the gospel. The process now of becoming holy, what we call sanctification, is also by the grace of God in the gospel. The grace you discovered in the gospel is the same grace in which you now stand. The second reason you need to continually rehearse the gospel, is that you're required to remember it. You're required to remember it. Isn't this precisely what the Lord's Supper is? It is a remembrance of what happened at the cross. You hear these words every week. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. The term gospel-centered is or has become so cliched. If you want to sell a book or a blog, you just stamp gospel-centered on it. It's easy to learn how to speak the language of gospel-centeredness, to talk about being gospel-centered and yet have zero experience of the power of the gospel in your life. And that's sad because these truths are profoundly practical. The gospel really does transform us to the core. We need to learn how to make those gospel connections and then press those truths into our lives. Let me share a simple model for how this works. I learned this about 15 years ago in a lecture by Dr. Mike Bullmore. He's a pastor from Wisconsin, and I found it very helpful. It begins with a foundational understanding that all Christian behavior flows from the gospel. All Christian behavior flows from the gospel. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul gives a long list of sinful behaviors. Then at the end of verse 10, Paul adds a catch-all. Here's what he says, and whatever else is contrary to, to sound doctrine. In verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Notice two things. First, all sinful behavior is contrary to sound doctrine, and two, sound doctrine here is in accordance with or it is it conforms with the gospel. A visual might help. Picture the Christian life as three concentric circles. In the center is the gospel, the message that Christ died for our sins. Think of the four historical facts we learned earlier. From that message flow sound doctrine. We call these gospel truths. The gospel gives rise to gospel truths. They are implications of the gospel. They're not the gospel itself. These gospel truths shape our minds and our hearts. They shape how we think and how we feel. They shape and form new patterns of thinking and desire. A couple of examples, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Follow Paul's logic. Because of what the gospel did, it justified us by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. That's the gospel truth. That truth that you are at peace with God. Shape and form new patterns of thinking and desire within you. Let that truth soak into you. Let it shape what you fear that it shaped the way you enter into God's presence in prayer or how you enter into His presence in worship. Because of the gospel, we can cling to the gospel truth that we have peace with God. That is the truth. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel truth that arises from the gospel is that now Right now, you are not condemned. Just let that sink in. Let that gospel truth shape and form new patterns of thinking and desire within you. Let it shape the way you see yourself when the enemy would have you bound up with guilt and shame. No, you are not condemned. What a freedom. What a freedom. And those are just two of many, many examples that we could give gospel truths like those shape and form new patterns of thinking and new desires within us. They produce new behavior as well. You see, when we get this behavior truth backwards, we end up creating Christian performers or Christian pretenders, or we just drive people to despair. That's because we detach Christian behavior from the gospel, and it's powerless, and it devolves into mere moralism. The outer circle is gospel behavior. These are gospel, these are behavioral implications that flow from gospel truths. Paul describes this as your manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. That's Philippians 1. He also describes it as conduct that is in step with the truth of the gospel. He uses that language in Galatians chapter 2. This is where he talks about having opposed Peter to his face. Remember that scene? He opposes the apostle Peter, and why did he do that? Paul says, this is verse 14 of chapter 2, I saw that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So all Christian behavior flows from the gospel. Gospel behavior flows from gospel truths that arise from the gospel itself. Our job, then, is to make those connections. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, find the connections between gospel truth and gospel behavior, and then press them into our hearts and press them into our minds and let them inform and shape and direct the way we live. Let me get you started with a handful of examples. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Paul gives this little four-word instruction. Flee from sexual immorality. That's the gospel behavior that is required of you and me. But it doesn't just hang there untethered. Paul isn't engaging in mere moralism here. This command is grounded in the gospel, in the gospel truths that transform our thinking and give new desires to our new heart. Verse, number, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. From the gospel truth that you are not your own because you have been purchased with a price follows the requirement to glorify God in your body by fleeing from sexual immorality. That's the gospel logic. I'm not my own. I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. I belong to Him. All that I have is His. Therefore, I will flee sexual immorality so that God is glorified in my body. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. We saw this principle at work last week. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive one another. That's the gospel behavior that's required of us. Then Paul grounds that in the gospel truth that God in Christ forgave you. That gospel truth becomes the motive and the model for you to forgive others. Think of the parable of the unforgiving slave. Ephesians 5.25. The gospel behavior, husbands love your wives. The gospel truth, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the gospel truth becomes both the motive and the model for husbands to love their wives. Another example of this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul is encouraging the, the Corinthians to give generously. He's taking a collection for the poor in the church in Jerusalem and listen to how he connects that request to give generously to gospel truth. Verse 9, For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. Paul isn't manipulating them. He knows that the gospel behavior of giving generously flows from the gospel truth of what Christ has done for them. This is fun. We can do this all the time in God's Word and make these connections. Let me close with this thought. If what I've taught this morning is in agreement with the Word of God, then I challenge you. I challenge you today to embark on a radically gospel-centered life. Rehearse the gospel. Soak yourself daily in the glorious gospel truths. Search the scriptures for them and connect them to gospel behavior. Press the truths of the gospel deep into your minds and into your hearts and continually remind yourself of them. Or as we say around here, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Do that by immersing yourself in the scriptures. That's your source of gospel truth. Do that by memorizing gospel truths. Do that by studying gospel truths with other gospel lovers. That's what men's studies and women's studies and community groups are about. Do it by reading sound gospel-centered books, by singing the gospel in worship, by, and by participating together in the remembrance of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. It's my prayer that the gospel would embed itself so deeply within you that it flows forth in beautiful, gospel-centered, God-glorifying acts of love for the world. May the gospel so consume you that you can say with the Apostle Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we love the gospel and we love these truths. Father, I I ask that you would convict us of our failure to apply these truths. Father, I pray that you would that you would convict us of very specific areas in our our life where we are not in step with the gospel where we behave in a way that is not in step with the truths of the gospel. Father, I do pray that you would pour out your grace upon us. I pray that you would help us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Father, so that you are honored and so that your name is made great among all the peoples of this earth. So, Father, glorify yourself in that work in our hearts. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.